and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave a rating on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever podcast service you're using. And leave a review if you can. It really helps. You can follow Relevant History on Twitter at Dan Toller Podcast for all the latest news. That's Dan T-O-L-E-R Podcast. And if you want even more delicious history content, subscribe to my Patreon channel. There, I deliver a monthly video series called Dan's War College with analysis of historical units, tactics, and battles. You can find a link to the Relevant History Patreon in the channel description. Now let's get on with the show. This is part two of a two-part episode covering Russia's growth and expansion through Siberia. Last episode, we talked about Russia's early history and her Viking origins. We talked about Yermak Timofeyevich, the infamous river pirate, and how he first defeated the Siber Khanate, opening the door to Siberia. We talked about the reign of Ivan the Terrible and the civil unrest that followed his death, almost putting an end to Siberian colonization. And we left off in 1613 with the installation of Tsar Mikhail Romanov and a newly stable Russian state. Now, let's get back to Siberia. In 1612, even as Mikhail Romanov has yet to take the throne, a group of local peoples in Siberia attempt another revolt. However, the ringleaders are rounded up and executed by local Russian forces. Even with the European part of the Russian Empire in chaos, it's easy for a relatively small number of troops to maintain control of Siberia. In part, this is because the native people of Siberia are few and far between. As you'll recall from Part 1, the entire population of Siberia in this era, from the Urals to the Pacific, is somewhere around 300,000 people. But the Russians are also able to dominate because of their colonization strategy. It's not just numbers. Remember, 90% or more of their transit routes through Siberia follow along rivers. There are no major roads in Siberia. The rivers are the road system. So the Russians build forts called Ostrogs at all the major river junctions. This serves a couple of functions. For one thing, the forts provide a safe place for Russian traders to seek refuge, and their locations right on the river makes them easy to resupply. But because they're at the river junctions, the Ostrogs also give the Russians control over the trade network. A couple of small cannons can sink any boat the local people use for trade or travel. Friendly local tribes, meaning ones who pay their tribute of fur to the Tsar, are able to prosper. Unfriendly tribes, ones who will not pay tribute, well, they are unable to trade along the rivers, and they're often cut off from each other entirely by these Russian forts. This allows Russian governors to pursue a divide-and-conquer policy, defeating one unfriendly tribe after another, and incorporating the friendly ones into the Russian Empire. This policy has an element of benign neglect to it. 
the Russians don't try to enforce their language, customs, or religion, or at least not at first, and they leave the tribes to manage their own internal affairs. As long as you pay your annual tribute, your tribe can live at peace under the new empire. Compared to the old situation under the Khans, where tribute often meant going to war, many tribes are happy to accept the new arrangement and who can blame them. Paying a little fur tribute is far preferable to dying in battle. Another benefit of the Russian Ostrogs is unintended. Remember, the Tsars are only interested in Siberia because of all the potential fur wealth, but many individual people in Russia are migrating because of the chance for a fresh start. The Russian feudal system is famously brutal and requires peasants to hand over a huge portion of their crops every year in rent payments. A life in Siberia is hard. You'll have to clear a bunch of pine forest and deal with acidic soil just to even get started farming. But with the protection of the garrison and a local Ostrog, you at least have a chance to till your land without being beholden to a wealthy landlord. So what ends up happening is that these little wooden river forts, these Ostrogs, turn into local centers of civilization. Local administrators take up residence, and markets are built, as are Eastern Orthodox churches, to minister to the new Russian-majority population. In Part 1, I drew some comparisons between the U.S. and Russia because both countries find their footing as frontier nations. And it might be tempting to compare this Russian move eastward, particularly the resettlement of peasants, to the U.S. homestead system. In the 1800s, the U.S. government claimed ownership of huge swaths of land in the American West and gave out parcels of that land to anyone willing to farm it. This isn't quite how the Russian settlement of Siberia goes, though. Their effort is a bit more haphazard. Yet you have a lot of the same kinds of people going east in Russia as you will going west in the U.S. It's a combination of go-getters attracted by the fur trade and peasants trying to escape their landlords. You also see something you don't see in the American version of the story, which is large numbers of convicts and political prisoners being sent into exile. Now, Fans of the old American West will know how famously lawless much of that land was. The Western movies are no doubt exaggerated in most cases, but by any modern standards, the old American West was a pretty lawless place. Well, imagine a place even more distant, even more isolated... And, oh yes, there are all kinds of former convicts being sent there. You can imagine what kind of lawless frontier atmosphere you're looking at. Maybe one day there will be a Hollywood Western, but it'll really be an Eastern, because it'll be set in Siberia. Who knows? 
people aren't just exploring Siberia by land. In the year 1600, a group of Cossack explorers founds the city of Mangazea. This is a trading post on the Taz River in the far north of Siberia, and while it's closer to Europe than it is to the Pacific, it's further east than the Russians have traveled by land. The city begins to expand, sucking in fur and walrus ivory from across north-central Asia, and then during the short summer thaw, these goods can be shipped along the Arctic coast to Arkhangelsk, and after that to England, the Netherlands, and other friendly trading countries. But Mangazea's heyday is short-lived. Because its trade does not have to travel through inland Russia, the Tsar is unable to collect taxes on much of it, and the city is far too distant for him to enforce his laws. The powerful Stroganov family, who control Russian trade through the Urals, are also upset. They're beginning to become jealous of Mangazea's sea trade, and there are even fears that English traders will try to colonize Siberia from the north and cut Russia off from what we might call her manifest destiny of colonizing Asia. So, in 1619, Tsar Mikhail I bans all trade along the North Sea route, under penalty of death. He has naval patrols established to catch anyone who might be trying to trade with Mangazea, and he even publishes phony maps that show an inaccurate location for the city. Starved of all legal trade, Mangazea soon falls into disrepair, and the last remnants are destroyed in a fire in 1678. At the same time, expansion over land is accelerating. Tsar Mikhail establishes a system of governors known as voivods to administer Siberia. These voivods are appointed for two-year terms, and they're term-limited, meaning that once they've served, they can never serve again. And incidentally, they are paid a percentage of whatever furs they're able to collect in taxes. Unfortunately, this does not go well for the native Siberians. Corrupt voivods demand extra taxes and require natives to pay taxes on behalf of relatives who have run away and even on behalf of their dead relatives. Non-payment is met with a swift death or even with the destruction of your entire village. This leads to a vicious circle. The natives who aren't killed end up spending so much time hunting for rare furs that they cannot farm or hunt for food, and many die in the famine that follows. Not only that, but the excessive fur hunting depletes the local fur stocks in western Siberia. But from the perspective of the Stroganovs and other wealthy merchants, this is not necessarily a terrible thing. More people will continue to enter Siberia and settle further east into the virgin, fur-filled taiga. Starting in 1630, smallpox comes to Siberia. This disease has been known to most of the Old World for centuries by now, but in these remote regions, 
The local people are as defenseless as the Native American tribes against this new and deadly killer. Thousands die over the course of the 17th century, and the native population further declines. Even today, in the 21st century, ethnic Russians in Siberia outnumber ethnic Siberians by a significant margin. But in 1630, Russia only controls the western portion of Siberia. This is the part closest to the Ural Mountains. Most of northern Asia remains an unknown country. But the riches brought by the short-lived city of Mangazea have opened Russia's eyes to the potential of this uncharted territory. So they continue following Siberia's dense river network to move eastward. I don't want to throw too much geography at you here, but this river network consists primarily of three main river basins. There's the Ob River Basin in the west. This is right next to the Urals, where the Russians have already explored pretty thoroughly. Next, there is the Yenisei River Basin in central Siberia and furs from that area had come through from Mangazea. And then in the east of Siberia, there's the Lena River Basin, which extends within a few hundred miles of the Pacific. If you want to see a map of these river basins, I've put a link in the episode description. Anyway, it's these three river basins, the Ob, the Yenisei, and the Lena, that serve as Russia's eastward road to expansion. In his book, East of the Sun, The Epic Conquest and Tragic History of Siberia, American author Benson Bobrick tells the story of the next few years pretty succinctly. Now, pardon me as I inevitably butcher some of the Russian names here. Bobrick says, quote, In 1632, a former military governor of the district inspired by the bounty to which Mangazea had given access, exhorted the Tsar to press on from the Yenisei to a conquest of the Lena River Basin, to the east of the Sun. The Russians had first heard about the Lena from the Tungus, who also told them about the Yakuts, or horse people, who inhabited its shores. Originally pastoral nomads from regions farther south, the Yakuts had fled northward during the upheavals accompanying the rise of Genghis Khan, and had eventually settled along the middle Lena, where they continued to practice cattle and horse breeding in spite of the severe climate, sheltering the animals in their own dwellings during the winter months. Westward affluents of the Lena were quickly reached from eastward branches of the Yenisei, as expeditions from Yeniseisk and Mangazea raced across short, portages of low rolling hills and penetrated the river basin from both north and south. Soon, rival exploring parties from Tomsk and Tobolsk also showed up. But it was not until the government dispatched the Cossack Pyotr Beketov, renowned for his subjugation of the Buryats and Tungus along the Angara, from Yeniseisk, that the conquest of the Lena really began. In 1631, he portaged from Ilimsk, founded the previous year, to the Lena with about 30 men, proceeded up the river, built a fortified camp of fallen trees, and imposed tribute on the local Yakuts. In 1632, he founded Yakutsk, later a base for expeditions to the Arctic and Pacific, 
on a big bend of the river, and Zagansk to the north. Aminsk, Vilyusk, and other outposts quickly followed on tributary streams. An Oleg was started at the junction of the Olema and Lena rivers in 1635. Meanwhile, Cossack bands from the different towns had begun to fight among themselves for a share of the spoils. Infatuated with a kind of hometown pride, some of them even became involved in intertribal wars on opposing sides. Elsewhere, tribute was collected from some of the natives two and even three times, provoking uprisings where at first peoples had been easily subdued. Such clashes led to a decline of revenue for the treasury, prompting Moscow to designate Yakutsk in 1638 as the headquarters of a separate military administrative district from which servicemen from other districts were banned. This measure had only partial success. Whereas the conquest of western Siberia had been methodically planned, to the east a new and more rugged country had begun, with frontier fortresses constituting tiny islands of domination in a gigantic land. On the Lena, the Russians were 2,500 miles from the Urals, and so remote from Kremlin directives that the initiative inevitably passed to the local authorities and even to individual groups. Most Cossack or exploring parties amounted to no more than 20 or 30 men, and sometimes to less than 10. These Promyshelniks, hunters and trappers, led the way, with the state, which had taken the lead in western Siberia, following after them, constructing forts to command rivers and portages and to supervise the collection they had already begun to tap. The lack of an organized military force seemed at times to give the natives a fighting chance. The Buryats, for example, continued to resist Russian incursions fiercely, and mountainous terrain enabled them to use guerrilla tactics to telling effect. It was not until 1648 that the Russians succeeded in ascending the Angara River as far as Lake Baikal, when the Cossack Kurbat Ivanov, who first discovered the lake, also crossed it, and after fierce fighting imposed Yasak, or fur tribute, on the Buryats inhabiting its eastern shores. In the following year, Ivan Pokobov, a commandant from Yeniseysk, renovated and strengthened the Angara fort of Bratsk, founded 1631, with parapets and moats, and led another party across the lake to the mouth of the Selenga River. He thus found himself on the Mongolian frontier. Ascertaining that the local Buryats obtained silver, silk, and other objects from outer Mongolia and returned for furs, he sought out the warlord or Khan of the eastern Mongols, known as Altin Khan, who professed to have no silk or silver of his own except what he obtained from the Chinese. Meanwhile, new forts were erected, at Verkolensk, 1641, Verknearnsk, 1646, Verknukdinsk, 1648, and Barguzin, 1648, on either side of Lake Baikal, and then at Irkutsk, at the junction of the Angara and Irkut rivers, in 1652. As part of the Russian pacification program, many natives were forcibly baptized, and those who did not willingly consent were driven into the stream, and once they came back, a cross was hung around their necks. In one still more crude procedure, 
Two or three buriats at a time were tied to a long pole and plunged into freezing water through a hole in the ice. Not surprisingly, this convinced them that the new faith had little of solace to offer them, and in suicidal fury, they attacked the garrison at Bratsk. In 1652, Pyotr Beketov was sent to rescue the Tsar's authority. In the course of the following year, he explored the Selenga, Ingoda, and Shilka rivers on rafts, founded Irgensk, and in the spring of 1653, Nerchinsk, across from the mouth of the Nercha River. While the Yenisei was being brought under control, progress was also made on the Lena, as the conquest from Yakutsk proceeded in three directions northeast to Bering Strait, the Bering Sea, and Kamchatka, eastward to the Sea of Okhotsk, and southward to the Amur River Valley. Indeed, just two years after reaching the Lena, the Russians had followed up the Aldan River to its source in the Stanovoy Mountains, and in 1639, a detachment of 20 men, under the command of Ivan Moskvitin, went in search of what the natives called the Great Sea Ocean. Proceeding up the Maya and Udoma rivers, they made their way through a mountain pass and descended the Ulia River to the Sea of Okhotsk, part of the North Pacific Ocean. 125 years after the Spaniards had discovered the Pacific from the east, the Russians had discovered it from the west. And in just 55 years, while American colonists were still east of the Appalachians, they had crossed the whole of northern Asia. Unquote. Now, we've just blazed through a lot of time here. When Bobrick says 55 years, he's referring to the 55 years between Yermak's conquest of the Khanate of Siberia and the arrival of Ivan Moskvitin's expedition at the Pacific Coast in 1639. Bobrick himself has made a comparison to American colonists, and I've yammered on enough about the size of Siberia versus the size of the U.S., but... Here's one more number for you. As the crow flies, the distance from New York City to Los Angeles, California, is 2,449 miles. The distance from Okhotsk on the Pacific to Moscow is 3,497 miles as the crow flies, over 1,000 miles further, and... Okhotsk isn't even the furthest eastern extent of Siberia. Another point of comparison is Lake Baikal, which Bobrick also mentions. This lake is the source of the Angara River, which forms the headwater of the Yenisei River. Lake Baikal is the largest lake in the world by volume, and it's also the world's deepest. Despite having less surface area than most of the Great Lakes, it has more water than all of them combined, more than 20% of the world's fresh surface water. It's rich with fish, and unlike the rest of Siberia, it's well-populated. This region is home to some of the world's first-known human settlements outside of Africa. Lake Baikal is known to the Chinese of the time as the Northern Sea, and it represents the furthest known extent of northward Chinese exploration during this period. 
and when the Russians encounter these people and enact the forced religious conversions Bobrick is writing about, many of the people they're converting are Buddhists. And to a Cossack raider, one Buddhist looks much like another, whether they're a Siberian tribe or a subject of the Chinese Qing dynasty. And you can bookmark that, because this constant expansion in raiding is eventually going to get the Russians into trouble. Now, as Russian settlers are exploring eastward, they're also inevitably exploring northward. The Ob, Yenisei, and Lena rivers all drain into the Arctic. So, while you're trying to follow their tributaries from west to east, anytime you go downriver you're also going a little bit northward. So, while the North Sea trade route has been banned, the Russians are nonetheless able to exploit Arctic luxuries like walrus tusks, and small settlements of colonists can subsist on local fishing. This is the early 1600s. The Thirty Years' War is raging in Western Europe. The first European settlements in North America have just been established. And here these people are, traveling thousands of miles by riverboat, carrying or dragging their boats over crude roads to portage from one river system to another. Imagine trying to get anywhere, or trying to get your goods to market. There are hardly any roads to speak of, and when dirt roads are established, they turn to mud in the spring. But if you're savvy, and your boat has a tight-knit crew, you can get very wealthy. So, what you see with a lot of these explorers is these 10-30 to 30 man groups Bobrick is talking about. And a small, tight crew. Now, despite the so-called discovery of the Pacific Ocean in 1639, the Russians would not settle there until 1650. In his book, Glorious Misadventures, Nikolai Rezanov and the Dream of a Russian America, British author Owen Matthews writes of more intrepid Russian explorers. He says, quote, Other Cossacks, traveling in the same manner in similar boats, traversed the Arctic Ocean by hugging the northern coast of Siberia, and reached the Pacific by sea in 1648. Semyon Dezhnev, a Cossack from Veliki Ustog, had assembled seven snub-nosed, square-sailed riverboats known as Kochi, each crewed by up to 19 men. Sailing east in search of sable, his expedition rounded what is today known as the Bering Strait, passed between little and big Diomede Islands, the modern-day border between Russia and the USA, and founded an ostrog at Anadir on the Chukchi Peninsula. Four of his boats were lost, along with 64 out of his 89 men. Undaunted, Dezhnev returned later with a new expedition, discovered a portage through the tributaries of the Kalima River to the Sea of Okhotsk, from where he sailed as far as the border of the Chinese Empire on the Amur River in 1650. News of the explorations of Russian travelers was greeted with keen interest in Western Europe. The Dutch trader, Nicolas Vistin, one of the first Europeans to travel in Siberia and 13 times mayor of Amsterdam, 
incorporated Dezhnev's observations into the groundbreaking world map he produced in 1690, alongside his encyclopedic study of the Russian Empire, Nord and Ust Tatarie. Unfortunately for Russian navigators, however, Dezhnev's discoveries remained virtually unknown in his own country. The only extant copy of his official report was buried in an archive in Yakutsk until discovered in the 1730s. Unquote. Dezhnev, the expedition's leader, founds the town of Okhotsk, which becomes Russia's first Pacific coastal settlement. But either because the Tsar doesn't care or because he doesn't know, Okhotsk is not developed into a port. To be fair, it's tough to reach from inland, but it's still an opportunity for a Pacific coast port. Unfortunately, it won't be until 64 years later, in 1714, that Tsar Peter the Great will order a port to be built. As a side note, because Dezhnev's report is buried, he never gets credit for discovering the Bering Strait. And many educated Russians continue to believe that Far East Asia is connected to North America. Nonetheless, by the year 1650, Russia is truly a transcontinental nation, with land stretching from the Baltic in the west to the Pacific in the east. But as I alluded, they are about to reach one of the limits of their empire. Throughout the 1640s, the Russians, particularly Cossacks, have been moving south and east into the Amur River Valley. This valley is in the far north of Manchuria, and it's home to an agricultural people who pay tribute to the neighboring Qing tribe, which rules over the Manchu peoples. But the Qing tribe is in disarray, both to a succession dispute and due to a war with the Ming dynasty. The Ming administration has become mired in corruption and is faced with ethnic and peasant revolts throughout the Chinese empire. And Hong Taiji and his brother Dorgon, leaders of the Qing, have taken advantage. Along with their corps of Manchurian horse archers, they've gathered a multi-ethnic, gunpowder-armed rebel force to overthrow the last Ming emperor. Hong Taiji dies in 1643, but in 1644, Dorgon successfully leads the conquest of Beijing, and he installs Hong Taiji's five-year-old son Fu Lin as the emperor, with Dorgon himself conveniently acting as regent. Over the rest of the 1640s, Dorgon spends his time leading the armies and defeating the remaining Ming forces throughout China. But... In the meantime, the old Qing homeland in Manchuria has been neglected. No armed force has been there to stop the Russians from penetrating further and further into the Amur River Basin and extracting tribute from the local farmers. These Russian incursions don't happen all at once. Instead, there's a series of expeditions. Beginning in 1643 with an expedition of 133 men led by Vasily Poyarkov. Poyarkov is the Tsar's chief of correspondence in Yakutsk, and he wants to make a name for himself, as many of these administrators do, 
by exploring uncharted territory and extracting tribute. As he crosses the Stanovoy Mountains into the Amur River Basin, he leaves 50 men at a wooden fort, and with the remaining 83 men starts canoeing downstream. Along the way, he and his men encounter local people with farms and livestock who are happy to supply them with food. But these people also have metal tools, and Poyarkov thinks that there must be mines in this area. When the people insist that there are no mines and that they get their metal from trade with China, Poyarkov's men gun down a bunch of villagers, and the local people stop sharing their food and start arming up for a fight. With no other choice, Poyarkov continues downriver and makes camp in the wilderness. By spring of 1644, 40 of his 83 men have starved to death, and many of the dead have been eaten by the survivors during the winter. Thankfully, the 50 men he left behind in the mountains catch up with him, bringing much-needed food. But as Poyarkov's expedition continues downriver, their reputations have preceded them. Instead of trade, they encounter nothing but hostile people, and any Russian foraging parties are at risk of coming under attack. By the winter of 1644-1645, the expedition has reached the mouth of the Amur River on the Pacific coast. Even more men starve, and only 60 are left to sail up the Pacific coast to another Russian settlement, then back inland to Yakutsk, by spring of 1646. Despite his personal experiences, Poyarkov writes to the Tsar that there is a vast region suitable for farming and rich in natural resources, and that a few hundred men could subdue it. In 1649, three years after this report, a new expedition is launched, this time under the command of Yerofey Khabarov, Karparov is a former senior manager for the Stroganov Salt Cartel and has now gone into independent business in Siberia. A wealthy landowner and burgeoning salt miner in his own right, Karparov sees nothing but opportunity in the Amur River Valley. He privately finances an expedition of 150 men, and they arrive in the Amur River Valley in 1650. But when they arrive... The local farmers have already fled the area, fearing more Russian raids. In one village, Khabarov's men find a single elderly woman hiding in a woodshed. They torture her to find out more information, but she will only say that her people pay tribute to the Chinese emperor. Khabarov leaves a garrison of 50 men to establish a small fort and returns with the rest of his expedition to Yakutsk. He writes his own report to the Tsar, and it's more realistic than Poyarkov's. Khabarov tells the Tsar that he estimates it will take 6,000 men to secure the region, but that the farmland, fish, and fur in the area will be well worth the effort. Authorities in Moscow are enthusiastic, and they dispatch an army of 3,000 men. But that army will take some time to arrive. Unwilling to wait... Khabarov returns to Manchuria in fall of 1650, and with a new force of 138 men. 
These men proceed in a campaign of what can only be described as genocide. Benson Bobrick writes, quote, In June 1651, they began to fight their way down the Amur. Khabarov ravaged numerous settlements without mercy, and in this barbarous manner conquered both banks of the river as far as the Sungari. Below this tributary, the region was completely devastated within a week's time, as the Russians looted and burned and cut down the natives like trees. In one instance, they seized hundreds of women and children. With God's help, recalled Khabarov, we burned them, we knocked them on the head, and counting big and little, we killed 661. His rampage continued into the land of the Goldie, where he again left a trail of blood. The carnage made such an impression upon the inhabitants that 200 years later, their folk tales had transformed the Russians into fiends. When the Russians first arrived on the Amur, one historian has written, the natives cultivated fields and kept cattle. Ten years afterwards, these fields had become deserts. Although Khabarov prevailed, collecting hundreds of fur pelts, and established a second strategic stronghold with the founding of Akhansk, he dramatically altered Russian prospects for the long term, since the natives, anticipating unending grief at Russian hands, now urgently appealed for aid to their neighbors and nominal masters, the Manchus. Unquote. And if you'll recall, those Manchus aren't just some local tribal warlords or even a weak state like the Siber Khanate, those Manchus have just become the Qing dynasty, masters of China. These people are fielding armies of 200,000 men in a time when large European battles might have 40,000 men on each side. Yerefei Khabarov has just casually walked into the den of the Chinese dragon and pilfered a little bit of treasure. And no army from Moscow, certainly not a 3,000-man expeditionary force, is prepared to deal with an adversary of such power. In 1652, the Qing emperor dispatches a force of 2,000 men with muskets and cannons to drive out the Russians, and they besiege Khabarov and his fort. But they don't launch an all-out assault, and eventually leave with a warning. If the Russians do not leave the Amur River Valley, the Chinese will return with more troops. Earlier historians viewed this as a failure on the part of the Chinese commander. He has such a huge advantage, why doesn't he just wipe the Russians out? But, see, it's a bit more nuanced than that. It seems like what happened is that the Chinese commander was ordered to take the Russians alive. But they refused to surrender, no matter how much fire the Qing troops poured into the fort. And faced with the alternative of letting them go or engaging in a bloody melee assault, he chose to withdraw. See, the Qing don't want a war with Russia they're still dealing with a lot of internal problems, and they'd rather trade with the Russians. In fact, 
Tsar Mikhail I had sent an emissary to the Chinese court way back in 1618, and the Ming emperor had sent back a message offering to trade. Unfortunately, the Russians don't have anyone in Moscow who can read Chinese, so the message won't be translated until 1675. Tragically, all of this border conflict could probably have been avoided if the Russians had had a Chinese speaker in their court. As it stands, the Tsar learns of Yerefei Khabarov's cruelty towards the natives and how he has angered the Qing dynasty. In 1653, Khabarov is arrested and sent to Moscow to stand trial. While he is ultimately acquitted, he retires to his own estates and never launches another expedition. Command of Khabarov's men is given to his deputy, Onofri Stepanov. The Tsar ensures that these men, these Cossacks, under Khabarov's command will be loyal to Stepanov by sending his emissary with a bunch of military medals. So, even as Khabarov is being arrested, all of his troops are receiving a bunch of medals and official honors from the Tsar, so they're more than happy to keep fighting under Stepanov instead. And Stepanov now finds himself in command of 320 starving men in the Amur River Valley. From 1653 to 1658, he raises more troops and continues to exact tribute from the local people. In 1654, his men face a setback at the Battle of Hutong. After a Russian fleet with 39 ships and 400 men defeats a 160-ship Qing fleet, the pursuing Russians are ambushed by Korean musketeers, who have allied with the Qing to drive out the encroaching Russians. The Russians are forced to retreat and are pursued for several days. Around this same time, the Qing emperor evacuates all the farmers from the Amur River region and resettles them further south in China. This is designed to deprive the Russians of food, which it does, but it also makes it harder for the Chinese and Korean troops to resupply. So, where you'd expect the Russians to lose pretty quickly against superior Sino-Korean numbers, that is not necessarily the case. For example, after Stepanov's small force is forced to retreat after the Battle of Hutong, the 10,000-man-strong pursuit force is forced to break off the chase because they don't have enough food and they've got to turn back. So, the border conflict in Manchuria remains on a low simmer with both sides using limited numbers of forces and the Russians mostly employing Cossacks and outlaws. This comes to a head in 1658, when a newly built Chinese river fleet forces battle with an 11-ship Russian flotilla. Ten of the Russian ships are sunk or captured, and Onofri Stepanov himself is killed in the fighting. After this defeat, the Russians withdraw their outposts and command of the region is transferred to the settlement at Nerchinsk, which is far enough west to be deemed safe. Over the next several years, there are no official military actions by Russia in the Amur River Valley. 
However, the region becomes a haven for outlaws from all over Siberia. In 1665, a Polish soldier in Russian service, a man named Nikifor Chernigovsky, murders his garrison commander and leaves 80 mutineers into the Amur River Valley. They establish a stronghold called Albazin, which grows into something resembling a landlocked pirate republic. But as more deserters, mutineers, and criminals join the colony, they develop thousands of acres of land uh, as cropland, and in 1672 they offer this land to the Tsar in exchange for a pardon, which he grants. This leads to a return to a more organized colonization of the Amur River Valley over the next several years, which is made easier by a new succession crisis in China. But as many people have learned throughout the years, the Russians are about to learn that it's unwise to challenge a united Chinese empire. Once this succession crisis plays out and the new emperor, Kang He, is installed, it's time to pay the piper. Benson Bobrick has this to say about the Chinese response to this latest Russian incursion. Quote, Emerging from his minority with a firm grip on his realm, in 1680, Kangxi was at last able to act decisively to stop the Russian advance. Realizing that diplomacy combined with intermittent fighting would not suffice, he proceeded to develop a position of overwhelming strength from which to force negotiations on his terms. A military buildup in northern Manchuria was begun, and special attention paid to the problems of supply. Starting in 1680, a chain of garrisons was established from Peking north to the Amur and along its tributary rivers and streams, and the area around the Russian settlements was carefully reconnoitered and mapped. A dockyard was built at Kirin for the preparation of a fleet. Supply transports were set upriver, and granaries were established for the troops on the upper Liao. A canal connecting the Liao and Sungri rivers was also dug. In 1684 to 85, Military farming was introduced in Aigun, and rice stockpiled in Manchuria. Up until the end, however, Kangxi hoped for a political solution, without recourse to war. He made a final effort to reach a settlement with Russian officials, urging them to return to Yakutsk. You can hunt sables and collect taxes there, but you may not come into our land and make trouble. And he offered an exchange of prisoners and border trade. The Russians wanted more and remained defiant, but their position quickly deteriorated. A new Manchu stronghold at Aigun cut them off from the Zaya, and they were evicted completely from the Lower Amur and its tributaries by 1683. On the Upper Amur, only Albazin remained. In addition to the usual stockade with corner towers, this fortress was surrounded by a large moat. Beyond the moat, which the Cossacks had dug with extreme difficulty in the frozen ground, was a wooden palisade, and beyond this, pointed iron stakes and camouflaged pits. Along the top of the walls were iron baskets filled with resin, to serve as lanterns in the event of a night attack, and stacks of long poles for pushing away the ladders of besiegers. An elevated gun turret 
enabled the fort's artillery to revolve in any direction. By early 1682, when Alexei Tolbuzin took over as fortress commander, the garrison consisted of less than 500 men, with dwindling supplies. The Manchu force in the area, variously estimated at up to 10,000, had cavalry and artillery, and increased its logistical advantages with each day. On May 23, 1685, it appeared beneath the fortress walls and put Tolbuzin's elaborate defensive preparations to the test. The Manchus built earthworks around the fort, including a wall to the south as a shield for their marksmen, placed cannon to the north, deployed troops to the east and west, and launched gunboats on the river. Toward evening, they piled dry wood at the base of the wooden stockade on three sides and set the tinder ablaze. With their navy holding the riverside, the Russians had no escape. After a steady bombardment by shot and incendiary arrows, initial casualties in the fort were heavy, and Tolbuzin ran up a white flag. In truth, the Manchus had the Russians at their mercy, and had been provoked to the point of rationalizing slaughter, as the Russians knew. Instead, with extraordinary consideration, the Manchus allowed the defenders an unmolested retreat to Nuchinsk. But no sooner had the Manchus themselves withdrawn than Tolbuzin returned with 826 men, 12 cannon, 4,000 pounds of powder, 140 hand grenades, enough food to last a year, and one Afanasi Beton, a German military engineer, to supervise the construction of an even more formidable fort. In July 1686, the outraged Manchus reappeared. On a hill a third of a mile away, they placed their large cannon and drew up their light artillery to a distance of about 500 feet. They surrounded Albazin as before, opened their bombardment with a rain of incendiary arrows, and advanced towards the walls behind large wooden shields sheathed in leather and mounted on wheels. Then they rolled up ladders equipped with grappling hooks, and after that carts of firewood, resin, and straw with which to set the fort on fire. When their demands for surrender were arrogantly met by a cannonade, they relentlessly pressed their siege, and all Russian attempts to reinforce the defenders failed. Tolbuzin and many others perished. Food ran out, and the rest began to starve. It is said that at one point the famished garrison, in a desperate stratagem, sent out a pie weighing 40 or 50 pounds to the Manchu commander to convince him that the fort was well supplied, the commander declared himself delighted and sent for more. Russian emissaries now hastened to Peking to announce the appointment of a new envoy to discuss frontier problems, and delivered a letter to Kangxi from the Tsar expressing hope for future peace. Once it was clear that serious negotiations were at last intended, Kangxi lifted the siege on November 3, 1686. Inside Albazin, less than 66 men remained alive. Unquote. Both sides agree to trade talks, as well as peace talks, but the Chinese are demanding a little bit more than what the Russians are willing to offer. They demand a complete withdrawal of Russian forces from all Manchuria, and they even threaten to launch an invasion of Siberia if their demands are not met. 
by the time the peace conference actually convenes in 1689, a Mongol leader named Galdan has united the Mongolian hordes and is making noise about invading China itself and toppling Emperor Kangxi. The Chinese don't want to fight the Mongolians and Russians at the same time, so at the peace conference, the Qing delegation is surprisingly accommodating. When the two sides sit down, as you might expect, there are some communication issues. In a fascinating quirk of history, this treaty, known as the Treaty of Nerchinsk, is actually negotiated and written in Latin. It is the only common language the Chinese and Russians can figure out to work with, and the Russians use a Polish translator, while the Chinese use a pair of Jesuit priests. Now, throughout the Middle Ages and much of the Renaissance, most European treaties have been negotiated and written in Latin, but this one is unique because it's fairly late in history, and... It's all the way over in Northeast Asia, and yet here we are with these negotiators speaking Latin. And the final version of the treaty, the Treaty of Nerchinsk, has six clauses. The first two define the border between the Russian and Chinese empires, and this will roughly follow the Stanovoy Mountains in the west and the Uda River in the east. Without getting way deep into geography, this leaves the Russians in control of Okhotsk on the Pacific coast and all of Siberia north of Manchuria. And it also guarantees the Qing dynasty control over their traditional Manchurian homeland. And this border will remain in place until the mid-1800s when the Russians will bite off some of Manchuria, including the strategic Pacific port of Vladivostok. So much for the first two of the six paragraphs. The third paragraph of the treaty stipulates that the fortress of Albazin is to be torn down and all Russians in the area are to return to Russia. And the sixth paragraph is just a general agreement to maintain peace in the future, and it gives the Chinese emperor the right to put up border markers along the defined border. But to me, it is the fourth and fifth paragraphs that are the most important. And here's a rough English translation, quote, Article 4. Fugitives from either side who may have settled in the other's country previous to the date of this treaty may remain. No claims for their rendition will be made on either side. But those who may take refuge in either country after the date of this Treaty of Amity are to be sent without delay to the frontier and at once handed over to the chief local officials. Article 5. It is to be understood by both governments that from the time when this Treaty of Amity is made, the subjects of either nation, being provided with proper passports, may come and go across the frontier on their private business and may carry on commerce. What we're reading here is a strikingly modern agreement between two countries. Both sides agree to turn over fugitives arrested in each other's territory. That's what we call an extradition agreement. 
Both sides agree to allow merchants to enter freely, provided they have proper documentation, and to engage in trade without interference. Well, that's what we call a free trade agreement. And this free trade agreement is beneficial for both sides. From the Russian perspective, it opens up a new market for furs. Even better, while their European customers prefer fox and sable fur, the Chinese prefer stoat and arctic squirrel furs. So Russian merchants are able to ship different furs to different markets in order to get the best price. From the Chinese perspective, Russian trade through Siberia represents a new silk road, a way to trade Chinese luxuries like silk and porcelain overland. And the Treaty of Nerchinsk is also beneficial to both sides from a military perspective. The Qing dynasty is now free to focus all of their efforts against the Mongols. Meanwhile, we haven't been talking about it because this is a history of Siberia and not a history of Russia, but all along, Russia has been getting involved in intermittent wars with her European neighbors. Asia is a source of wealth, but as fans of The Princess Bride will know, you never want to get involved in a land war in Asia. And Russian regent Sofia Alexievna does not commit such a foolish error. Speaking of which... Russia is being ruled by a regency at this time. Sort of. There's actually a weird co-czarship going on. See, when Tsar Fyodor III died in 1683, he left no heir, so rule should have passed to his younger brother Ivan. But Ivan is physically and mentally disabled. We're not sure exactly how, but it's likely he suffered from scurvy in his childhood. Anyway, the royal council votes instead to make an even younger half-brother, Peter, the Tsar instead. But Ivan's older sister, Sophia, calls in the royal guard and says that Peter is holding Ivan hostage. To avoid a civil war, the council and the Duma agree to let Ivan and Peter rule together. Because Ivan is mentally disabled and Peter is just a small child, this means that Sophia is effectively in charge. Around the same time the Treaty of Nerchinsk is being negotiated, Peter removes the increasingly unpopular Sophia from power. But he's still only 17 years old, and his mother Natalia Narishkina will continue to rule as agent until her death in 1694. That year, Peter Romanov becomes Tsar in his own right. His brother, Ivan V, continues to officially rule as Khozar, although he seems to have no real power, and he dies in 1696 at the age of 29 without leaving an heir. This leaves Peter as the sole uncontested Tsar, and ensures that his heir will inherit the entire Russian Empire. And Peter will come to be known as Peter the Great. Peter the Great is not just great in the historical sense. He's literally a huge man, standing six feet, eight inches tall, in a time and place where anyone over six feet would be unusually tall. Even before he becomes czar, he attracts attention everywhere he goes, and he seems to make a lot of friends. 
He spends much of his time in Moscow's foreign quarter, chatting with Dutch and German merchants and learning about the technological and cultural advancements in Western Europe. In 1600, Peter forms an alliance with the Danish and the Polish to make war against the Swedish Empire, which at this time controls most of the Baltic coast. He believes that the 18-year-old Swedish king Charles XII will be too inexperienced to lead his armies, and that the war will be easy. Instead, the Great Northern War will drag on for 21 years before the Swedish are finally defeated. But in 1703, only three years into the war, Russia has gained control of Ingria. This is a historically Russian territory on the coast of the Baltic Sea. And Peter announces the foundation of a new city, a truly European city, which is to be Russia's new capital. He launches this new city by hosting his daughter's wedding on the construction site, although most of the area is still undeveloped swampland. And as the city is being built, Peter and his wife even live in a small wooden cottage tending an outside garden, as if they were an ordinary peasant couple instead of the czar and his wife. Peter conscripts peasants from all over European Russia to build his new city, along with Swedish prisoners of war. In only ten years, St. Petersburg is ready to become Russia's new official capital. Peter introduces Western fashion to his court. He bans the old, traditional Muscovite belted fur coats and introduces more modern dress, and he also welcomes foreign scholars into Russia. He provides generous funding for any academics who want to come into Russia and ply their trade. Peter the Great is known for making Russia into a modern great power on the European model, and we've talked about the cultural stuff, but a lot of this comes down to the military. He modernizes the army, and I won't get into that too much here because it's not relevant to our story. What is relevant is that Peter also dreams of making Russia into a great naval power like the British, Spanish, and French, all of whom have formidable fleets and wealthy colonial empires. He even spends time in the Netherlands studying shipbuilding at one of the Dutch ports. It's kind of funny, by the way, he tries to do this incognito as part of a large delegation of Russians, and of course, because he's the only six-foot-eight guy there, everybody knows he's actually the Tsar, but anyway, he is gathering all kinds of knowledge about shipbuilding, and the Russians have always been masters of their rivers, but under Peter's rule, they will build their first world-class ocean-going ships. Building a great navy takes time, though. In the meanwhile, the Russians will continue to explore Asia by land. They're running out of room, though, and the last uncharted territory is the Kamchatka Peninsula. Kamchatka is at the far northeast end of Eurasia. It's about the size of Italy. If you're looking at a traditional two-dimensional map, it probably looks a lot bigger than that because it's at a northern latitude and the size is distorted, but it's about the size of Italy. It's still a 
somewhat sizable territory, and the end of the peninsula, the far, far east end, well, technically it's the Chuchki Peninsula over there, but the far east end of what is broadly called Kamchatka stretches within 60 miles of Alaska. The Russians begin exploring this land in 1696, the same year Peter the Great becomes absolute ruler, and the expedition is led by a man named Vladimir Atlasov. Atlasov has a somewhat murky past. He's born as a peasant and goes to Siberia to seek his riches. In 1672, he helps escort the annual tribute from Yakutsk to Moscow. Ten years later, in 1682, he appears again in history east of Yakutsk, collecting tribute along the Aldan River in eastern Siberia. Then, in 1695, he is appointed bailiff of Anadirsk. This is a river basin in far northeastern Kamchatka, a little bit south of the Bering Strait. But the rest of the Kamchatka Peninsula, which extends to the south, is still unknown to the Russians, except for the mouth of the Kamchatka River, which is rich with salmon. Vladimir Atlasov seems to be a real go-getter, because a year after taking command of Anadirsk, he leads an expedition south to explore the Kamchatka River and exact tribute from the local people. These people only have Stone Age technology. They've been very isolated from the world, but they actually give Atlasov a hard time. Benson Bobrick writes, quote, The Kamchadals battled Atlasov on skis and the reindeer Koryaks on dog sleds, one man driving and another using a bow and arrow, like Roman charioteers. They fought from enclaves, hurling rocks at the Russians with slings or by hand, and used spears and other primitive weapons. But the Russians, protected by shields, advanced on the native settlements, set fire to their yurts, and butchered all who tried to escape. Traveling by reindeer, they explored much of the west coast and part of the interior, then crossed the mountains to the eastern shore, imposing tribute on the population. By mid-July 1696, Atlasov had journeyed as far south as the Kamchatka River, where he divided his company in two, one group to continue exploring the peninsula's eastern side, the other to cross back over the mountains to the west. Atlasov's Yukagir auxiliaries rebelled, killing six of his men and wounding 15 others. Some Koryaks also absconded with his itinerant herd of reindeer, kept for transportation and food, but he gave pursuit, overtook them, and killed them to a man. At the headwaters of the Kamchatka River, the Russians found four large fortified Kamchadal settlements containing several hundred huts. To their surprise, they were greeted hospitably, exacted tribute without incident, and, learning that the community was at war with other Kamchadals downstream, won the settlers' firm allegiance by carrying out a retaliatory raid on their behalf. Atlasov then continued his southward march, and although he did not quite reach the southern tip of the peninsula, he learned that there were several islands, the Kuriles, in the sea beyond. These he understood to be inhabited by yet another people, 
the hairy Ainu, a strange subgroup of the Caucasian race exhibiting more body hair than any other human group. More surprising still, he heard that past the Kuriles were still larger islands, where people lived in towns made of stone, and from which the Ainu obtained costly plates and dishes, cotton garments, cotton textiles and plaids and bright colors, kitaika nankeen fabric, and kaftans. Some of these goods, in fact, had found their way via the Ainu to the peninsula. Unquote. These larger islands far to the south, full of riches, are, of course, Japan. But Atlasov does not know that. As a matter of fact, though, he does meet a Japanese man named Dembe. And of all the people in our story, I feel the sorriest for Dembe. Yes, many people are killed and even tortured during the conquest of Siberia. Dembe has to suffer something much worse. Isolation. See, Dembe was a merchant's clerk sailing with a Japanese fleet, but a couple of years prior, his ship was separated from the fleet during a storm. The crew drifted for days in the Pacific before arriving at the mouth of the Kamchatka River, where they got off and were slaughtered by the natives all except for Dembe, who the natives keep around as a curiosity. He keeps telling Atlasov that he is from Hondo, which is the old name for Hokkaido, the main island of Japan. But due to language barriers, Atlasov thinks he's saying not Hondo, but Hindu. He thinks that Dembe is a Hindu from India. Either way, not sure of what to do with poor Dembe, Atlasov has him sent back to Moscow. There, Dembe manages to convey that he is from Japan, and Peter the Great makes him the head of a new Japanese-language school. Dembe eventually converts to Orthodox Christianity, but he never marries, and he remains an outsider to the end of his days, never able to return to his home or even tell his family he is alive. To be fair, this isn't just a matter of Russian cruelty. See, during this time period, Japan is following a strict policy of isolation. Nobody comes in, nobody goes out. By virtue of being shipwrecked in Russia, Dembe has left Japan, so even if the Russians were to ship him straight back to Japan, he would not be allowed to re-enter the country. Anyway, sidebar over. The end of his expedition, Atlasov builds a fort and leaves a garrison on the Kamchatka River. And then he travels back to Anadirsk in 1699 and then all the way back to Moscow to make his report. The government's Siberian department awards him 100 rubles, enough to buy a small estate and they appoint him as Commandant of Kamchatka. Apparently this makes him think he is above the law, because on his way back to Kamchatka, Antonov attacks a Russian trade caravan loaded with Chinese goods and loots it. When he arrives in Yakutsk, the authorities catch him trying to sell his ill-gotten gains, and he and his accomplices are imprisoned. 
Vladimir Atlasov will not remain in prison for long, though. By 1703, all of Kamchatka's residents are registered as taxpayers, but most of them still have no interest in becoming a part of the Russian Empire. In 1705 and 1706, multiple Russian tax collectors are assassinated by the indigenous people. Not only that, but weak leadership allows the Cossack occupiers to loot and pillage at will, which destroys any goodwill that might have remained with the local peoples. So, since he's apparently the only person who can control the region, the Russians decide to put Atlasov back in command in Kamchatka. Arriving in July of 1707, he engages in a series of brutal retaliatory raids on indigenous villages. By Christmas, Kamchatka's natives have been entirely subdued. Unfortunately for Atlasov, he isn't just brutal to the locals, he is also cruel to his own men. To rein in the Cossacks, he imposes harsh discipline with ruthless punishments for even the most minor infractions. Eventually, this is too much even for the Cossacks, and in 1711, his men mutiny. Atlasov runs to a nearby fort and takes refuge with some officers. But the mutineers overwhelm the fort and kill Atlasov in his bed, along with the other officers, for good measure. The mutineers' leaders, Danilo Ansiferov and Ivan Kozarevsky, appeal to the governor of Siberia, saying that they mutinied because their officers were corrupt. And to prove this, they have actually found stolen furs sewn into the linings of one of Atlasov's wife's coats. The leaders also offer to make an expedition south of Kamchatka to explore the uncharted Kuril Islands as a way to make up for their rebellion. Those are, if you'll recall, the small islands south of Kamchatka and north of Japan. Well, Antisferov and Kozarevsky don't wait for an answer. They quickly organize an expedition and they chart the northern Kurils during the summer of 1711. They return with hand-drawn maps and receive their pardon. But their mutiny has caused yet another power vacuum in Kamchatka, and the local people once again launch a rebellion. Antiferov himself is killed when the rebels burn down his house with him inside. And it's not until a smallpox epidemic strikes in 1715 that the rebellion is finally put down. Meanwhile, Kozarevsky returns to the Kurils in 1713 and conducts trade with the locals. Eventually, the Russians will colonize the northern Kurils while the Japanese will colonize the southern Kurils, with both sides turning the local Ainu people into second-class citizens. The political status of these islands remains controversial to this day. There are actually competing Russian and Japanese claims on several islands in the chain. And meanwhile, the Ainu continue to represent a significant ethnic minority in both countries. But returning to 1713, at long last, at this point, the Russian colonization and conquest of Siberia has come to an end. But it hasn't come to an end by choice. The Russians have expanded across all of Asia, 
only stopping when they encounter a powerful nation like the Chinese or an immovable obstacle like the Pacific Ocean. But as I said, Peter the Great dreams big dreams. He wants Russia to become not just a land-based empire, but an overseas empire like the British, French, and Spanish. Throughout his reign, he continuously promotes shipbuilding and the expansion of the Russian navy. In 1725, he commissions an exploration of the Kamchatkan coast, believing that Asia and North America must be linked by land. To head the expedition, he appoints Vitus Bering, a Danish captain who is a career officer in the Russian navy. Two days before his death from a bladder infection, Peter the Great issues the following order. Quote, 1. In Kamchatka or some other place, build one or two boats with decks. 2. On those boats, sail near the land which goes to the north, which, since no one knows where it ends, it seems is part of America. 3. Discover where it is joined to America, and go as far as some town belonging to a European power. If you encounter some European ship, ascertain from it what is the name of the nearest coast, and write down and go ashore personally and obtain first-hand information, locate it on a map, and return here. Unquote. Upon his death, Peter's wife, Catherine, becomes the first Russian empress. She confirms Bering's orders, and Bering sets out on his expedition. Starting from St. Petersburg, it takes Bering and his men two years to cross all of Siberia and reach the port of Okhotsk. They bring with them much of the supplies needed to build their ships. Large iron anchors, ropes, barrel upon barrel of sealing tar, and pretty much everything else they need except for timber, which can be found in Siberia in abundance. At one point, in the winter of 1726-1727, they nearly meet with disaster. Bering has split his men up, leading half the crew ahead to Okhotsk with food and provisions, while one of his sub-commanders transports some of the heavier equipment by barge. Bering's men are delayed on the way to Okhotsk, and many of their horses die in the cold, and they're forced to abandon several tons of flour in order to reach town before winter. Meanwhile, Bering's sub-commander ends up having his barges frozen in on a river, and his men have to load up the most important supplies on dog sleds to make the rest of the journey. They end up eating all their rations, then the dogs, and then almost starving to death, and Ironically, they are only saved because they discover the flower that Bering was forced to abandon earlier. In the spring, Bering's men construct a small coastal ship. This is not an open ocean vessel, but it's enough to cruise up the coast, and cruise up the coast they do all the way to western Kamchatka. As it turns out, this area has no natural harbor to build a large seaworthy ship, so they travel around the southern end of the peninsula to eastern Kamchatka instead, and they build their ship there. Over the course of the next year, 
They boil seawater to produce salt and make cured fish and other rations for the voyage. Since they were forced to abandon much of their tar, they make a suitable substitute from tree sap. Eventually, on July 14, 1728, Bering's new ship, the St. Gabriel, sails north along the Kamchatkin coast, with enough supplies to outfit the crew for a year. Around August 8th, they encounter a group of friendly natives, who tell them that the coast continues north for a while, then curves away to the west. If this is true, then there's no land route to America. But Bering's mission is to confirm this. About a week later, the expedition passes through the strait between Alaska and Asia, which is now named the Bering Strait. You can actually see across the strait on a clear day, but... Unfortunately for Bering, there's heavy fog, and he does not discover Alaska this day. A few days after that, with the Asian coast obviously turning westward, it seems that the natives were correct, and there is no land route to America. The expedition turns back, rather than head further into the Arctic at the beginning of fall. Incredibly, when they traverse back through the Bering Strait, it's foggy again, and Alaska remains hidden. Bering spends the winter in Kamchatka, conferring with locals and veteran Cossacks. It seems as if there's no land route to America, but it also seems like there's some kind of land not too far to the east. Migratory birds go out to the east and then come back west to Asia. Fallen pine trees, which aren't native to the area, sometimes wash up on shore. So, in June of 1729, a year later, Vitus Bering and his men set out from the mouth of the Kamchatka River, and they sail around the Pacific in a radius of about 130 miles. The weather turns stormy, though, and before they can go out any further, they're forced to return to port. Seemingly defeated, Bering returns to St. Petersburg, where he arrives in March 1730 to make his report. For his efforts, Bering is promoted to Captain Commander, the third highest rank in the Russian Navy, and he almost immediately begins planning a second expedition. The new empress, Anna, is Peter the Great's niece, and she shares not only his desire to expand the Russian Empire, but also his love of science. She founds the Russian Academy of Science and insists that Bering's next expedition include biologists, geologists, and other scientists. This new expedition takes years to prepare. Multiple ships are to be built, some to sail east to America and others to sail south and claim all the Kuril Islands north of Japan. Additional ships are to sail along Siberia's northern coast from west to east, searching for a northern sea route from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Unlike last time, the supplies are far more organized, with storehouses built across the breadth of Siberia and large river barges built in advance to carry those supplies. Along the Arctic coast, lighthouses are built at the mouths of major rivers, and local governors round up herds of reindeer to resupply ships with food. All told, there are 3,000 people involved in the planning and preparations, 
and all of them are sworn to strict secrecy. Publicly, this is advertised purely as a scientific expedition. The goal of establishing a Russian presence in North America is kept strictly secret. In 1734, the journey east begins. Benson Bobrick describes the scientific contingent of the expedition and how that complicates matters right from the outset. He says, quote, The Academy contingent, in keeping with its professional dignity, was right luxuriously equipped. The staff included secretaries and research assistants, draftsmen, illustrators, an animal painter, an interpreter whose acquaintance with all the languages of antiquity was supposed to equip him to converse with the natives of America, a surgeon, cooks, servants, an instrument maker, five topographers, a drummer, and a military escort of 14 musketeers. In their train was a library of several hundred volumes, not only of scientific and historical works and their specialties, but also of the Latin classics and such light reading as Robinson Crusoe and Gulliver's Travels, large stocks of writing paper, drafting materials, artists' colors, inks, and so on. The supplies of Delacroix alone included ten canloads of instruments, assorted telescopes up to 16 feet long, five theodolites or astrolabes, 20 thermometers, 27 barometers, as well as bulky copper spheres, chains, magnets, and clocks. Each professor was allowed ten horses and the other members of the expedition six. In addition to familiar European foods, the academics had also packed away kegs of their favorite continental wines. Wherever they went, they had authorization to examine any archive collection, to requisition interpreters and guides, and to purchase necessary items at the Academy's expense. Even though within the program of the expedition they enjoyed a more or less independent status, it was Bering's responsibility to move this cumbersome machine, this learned republic, from St. Petersburg to Kamchatka, to care for their comforts and conveniences, and render possible the flank movements and side sallies that either scientific demands or their own freaks of will might dictate. In fact, this task eventually became too much for him, and he left them to look after themselves. Unquote. Instead, Bering takes the Ob River, right, the westernmost Siberian river, to the Arctic, and he joins one of the ships that's mapping the Arctic coast. He takes this to the Yenisei River, right, that's the central Siberian river, and he gets ahead of the scientists, traveling by river to Yakutsk in the eastern Lena River basin. Arriving in Yakutsk in October, he finds that the local governor hasn't done any of the advance work. The ships that are supposed to sail from the Lena to the Pacific have not been built. There are no supply houses, nor are there barges to move supplies by river. Bering has to spend the next six months building barges and ships and getting his supply situation in order before he can start shipping advanced supplies to Okhotsk. In the summer of 1735, things are not looking good. Only one leg of the Arctic expedition, the one from the Obe to the Yenisei, has been completed, and the Pacific explorations have not begun. Bering has been forced to build a foundry in Yakutsk to manufacture anchors, chains, and other iron parts for his ships, 
since nothing of the sort has arrived from Europe. Officials from St. Petersburg are hounding him with letters, urging him to speed things up and stop spending so much money. A year later, Bering's pay is cut in half, and he is threatened with demotion. He sends an angry letter back to the Admiralty, saying that none of the governors had done any of the work they were ordered to do, and so he is managing the entire expedition himself. The Admiralty ultimately sends inspectors to Siberia, and several local officials still refuse to help until they are threatened with torture. Keep in mind that it has now been two years since the official start of the expedition. Benson Bobrick talks about the scientific side of the expedition, which is still taking its time. He says, quote, During all this while, following behind Bering in leisurely stages, the Academy contingent had made its way to Irkutsk. Rather than press on via Yakutsk to Kamchatka, investigation of which was supposed to be the final object of their labors, Mueller and Gamelin paused to explore the Selenga River Valley south of Lake Baikal and made various excursions to the Sino-Russian frontier. There they consulted with Chinese officials, studied the border trade, and visited the silver mines near Nerchinsk. Returning in September 1735 to Irkutsk, they lingered through the Christmas holiday, which evidently consisted of one long drunken orgy, and then it was on to Ilimsk, where Easter furnished the occasion for another week-long binge. In this atmosphere of wild debauchery, Mueller and Gamelin seemed to have restrained themselves. The pervasiveness of syphilis in nearly every settlement perhaps stiffened their will, but given their encyclopedic mandate, they had more than enough to do anyway and had already accumulated a voluminous archive of documents and notes. At the beginning of May 1736, the ice began to break up on the Leno River, and on the 27th, the whole academy group, including Delacroix, embarked downriver in a flotilla of 12 boats. Many peasants and convict exiles had been impressed into transport duty as veritable galley slaves for the expedition's numerous detachments, but by the time the academics set out, they had deserted in such numbers that rows of gallows had to be erected in villages all along the river to discourage further flight. When the academics finally strode into Yakutsk in September, most of the naval personnel had long since arrived, and the city had been transformed into a central supply depot for Bering's remaining tasks. Indeed, there was no room left for anyone else and their arrival created a logistical nightmare. Bering had already been badgered unfairly by the Admiralty for unwanted delays, and his own priorities were clear. The naval command, he told them, had enough to do just to look after itself. And so, to whatever complaints the academics had about housing, supplies, and transportation, he simply turned a deaf ear. All decent lodgings had been taken, most of the scholars had to hole up for the winter in primitive tent-like cabins that had a central opening in the roof for ventilation and light. These Schwarztuben, swart rooms, as Gamelin called them, were impossible for anyone with work to do requiring clean surroundings. As botanical specimens withered, writing paper quickly became black with soot, and the expedition's artists had to mix their colors on entirely different principles— because so much unavoidable black had got into them that they were spoiled. 
unquote. Remaining laser-focused on the naval aspect of this expedition, Bering sends his second-in-command, a man named Martin Spanberg, ahead to Okhotsk to oversee the building of the ships. Another man, Grigory Pizarev, had been appointed regional commander back in 1731 and given responsibility for building a proper dockyard and collecting supplies. But when Spanberg arrives, he finds no dockyard or supplies, and Pizarev is not even there. Eventually, Pizarev arrives with a group of Cossacks, and both men start accusing each other of dereliction of duty and even threaten to arrest each other. Worse, they won't cooperate. Spanberg gives up and has his men start building their own dockyard. Instead of having his men help, Pizarev orders them to start building a separate dockyard a few hundred yards away. This is just one example of how there is absolutely no coordination. And all of this further delays preparations, but Spanberg is a pretty competent guy. And by the time Bering arrives in Okhotsk in 1737, not only is the dockyard complete, but Spanberg has actually floated enough timber downriver not just to repair Bering's two old ships, but to build two new ones for the Kuril Islands half of the expedition. One of the original ships, the supply ship Fortuna, is sent ahead to Kamchatka. But it springs a leak, and the crew is forced to throw all the cargo overboard in order to save weight. Then there's an earthquake and what sounds like a small tsunami, and the pilot intentionally runs the Fortuna aground. The crew escapes, but the ship is ultimately washed out to sea and breaks up. There are other hardships along the way, and I don't want to draw out the story unnecessarily. In one bizarre incident, one of the scientists' clocks is damaged while traversing river rapids, and they need a clockmaker to fix them, and the only clockmaker available in the backwoods of Siberia is an exiled sex offender who actually ends up doing a pretty good job of fixing these clocks, but it's just one example of some of the bizarre circumstances these people have to deal with constructing a major expedition on the frontier. In 1738, Spanberg and a British commander named William Walton lead two ships on an exploration of the Kuril Islands, and they map dozens of them. Eventually, they're separated by fog, and both claim to have entered a Japanese port and traded with the locals. But their logs disagree, and the dates don't line up, and it seems like the two were so eager to upstage each other that they may have exaggerated. Meanwhile, Vitus Bering has completed construction of another ship to replace the Fortuna, and he has moved his small fleet to a bay in eastern Kamchatka. In summer of 1741, after seven long years of work, the expedition is ready to depart. This time, their mission is to sail east until they reach North America, map as much as they can, and avoid any contact with any European colonists, although this shouldn't be too hard. Right at this time, northwestern North America is basically the only part of the Americas that is devoid of Europeans. But it's going to be a short journey. 
with enough supplies for only one season, in an unknown wilderness on the American side of the Pacific, the plan is to make a short voyage. First, the fleet will head southeast in search of Juan de Gama land. This is a mythical landmass in the middle of the Pacific. If Juan de Gama land doesn't exist, and spoiler alert, it does not, the expedition will then turn northeast and follow the North American coast back west and finally cross back to Kamchatka. This is disappointing to the scientific members of the expedition who had hoped to spend a full season in America gathering plant and animal samples and studying the local geology. The expedition sets out on June 4, 1741. By June 20th, they reach the supposed location of Juan de Gama land. Finding nothing but open ocean, they turn northeast towards the location of North America as per their plan. But a storm separates Bering's ship, the St. Peter, from her companion ship, the St. Paul. And after sailing around for a few days looking for the St. Paul, Bering resumes his previous course. By July 14th, no land has been sighted, rations have been reduced, and more than half of the fresh water is gone. But a day later, on July 15th, the crew sights land. Mount St. Elias, a volcano in southeastern Alaska. Shortly thereafter, they stop near a river to gather fresh water. When the crew goes ashore, they actually land near a small native settlement. They find a fireplace with smoke rising from it and an abandoned meal of half-eaten fish. It seems as if they scared some people off when they landed. So in addition to refilling their water, they also gather some supplies and tools the natives had left behind. And not wanting to make any enemies by stealing these people's stuff, Bering orders his men to leave payment on the beach. They leave some iron kettles, a pipe, tobacco, and a few bolts of Chinese silk. Unbeknownst to Vitus Bering, his co-commander, Alexei Chirikov, has also made landfall at Alaska on July 15th in the St. Paul. Unfortunately, when Chirikov sends men out in a longboat to land on shore, the boat never returns. So he dispatches his second longboat, which also disappears, and now without any way to actually land on shore or resupply with fresh water, he makes a beeline back for Kamchatka in the St. Paul. This is probably for the best. See, Bering takes his time exploring the Alaskan coast, and by the time he's headed back west, following along the Aleutian Islands, the weather turns. The tailwinds become headwinds, and the St. Peter crawls forward at a few miles a day. The water once again runs low, and most of the crew is suffering from scurvy. On November 4th, Without enough healthy men to continue running the ship, Bering orders his men to drop anchor. They believe that they have arrived at an uninhabited part of the Kamchatkan coast, 
but their situation is far worse. This is an uncharted island off the coast, and they're now stuck here for the winter. There's hardly anything to eat except for the sea otters and, oh by the way, the hundreds of arctic foxes that try to bite the crew. These animals have never seen people, as far as we know, and they're completely fearless, and the foxes get so close to the sailors trying to snap at them and bite them that many sailors use axes and even knives to kill the foxes. Despite their meager supply of food, many of the men still die, amongst them Vetus Bering himself, who succumbs to scurvy on December 19th and is buried on the island. In spring, the surviving crew tear down the St. Peter, and they build a smaller ship out of all the wood that is still serviceable. In April, they return to their home port in Kamchatka and learn that Alexei Chirikov, the second-in-command of the expedition, had sent a rescue ship to search for them during the winter and it had missed their little island by only a few miles. Despite his tragic death, Vitus Bering has accomplished what few people ever accomplish, and become one of the world's greatest explorers. Unfortunately, because the Russians want to keep their interest in North America quiet, there is no public fanfare, and for nearly a hundred years, Few people outside of Russia even hear of Bering's name. This is a stark contrast to men like Christopher Columbus and Ferdinand Magellan, who, whatever their shortcomings as human beings, get more than enough credit for their work. Owen Matthews sums up Bering's legacy as follows. Quote, Despite its high death toll, the second Bering expedition marked a breakthrough for Russian expansion to the New World, not least because in Russian eyes, Chirikov had made the land Russian by right of first discovery. Chirikov was not the first European to explore the northern Pacific coast of America. That honor goes to the Elizabethan privateer Sir Francis Drake, who sailed up the coast as far as San Francisco and has shipped the Golden Hind during his 1577-1580 round-the-world voyage. But Chirikov was the first navigator of modern times to record a landing on the coast, albeit a disastrous one, and had thereby staked a claim to the New World in Russian blood. But like the conquest of Siberia, it was not state ambition but private enterprise that drove Russians forward towards America. Word of Steller's descriptions of islands full of fur seals spread quickly across Siberia. Over the next decade, over 30 groups of Cossack explorer-adventurers visited the Aleutian Islands, sailing in 40-foot shtitik boats, single-masted, square-sailed vessels of archaic design, out of Okhotsk and Petropavlovsk, for the crews who returned from these two- or three-year fur expeditions, the profits were vast. One merchant returned from the Aleutians in 1754 with the pelts of 1,662 sea otters 
840 fur seals, and 720 foxes. For the natives, however, the consequences of Russian violence, disease, and the depletion of their fragile fishing grounds were devastating. Vladimir Atlasov, an early Cossack explorer of Kamchatka, reported a population of two or three thousand adult males on the peninsula in the 1730s. By the first official census in 1773, only 706 souls remained. The Bering-Chirikov expedition also fired imaginations in St. Petersburg with dreams of adding America to the Russian Empire. O Russian Columbuses, scorning a grim fate, between the mounts of Ida will open a new path to the east, and we will plant our state on America's shores, wrote Mikhail Lomonosov, the autodidact scientist who founded Moscow University in his 1747 ode, Peter the Great. Lomonosov, as well as being Russia's first secular public intellectual, was also part Pomor, a northern Russian people who had been the first explorers of the North Siberian coast. He therefore had an inherited as well as an academic interest in Arctic navigation. In 1755, Lomonosov penned an influential essay, Letter on the Northern Route to East India via the Siberian Ocean. He also drew the first map of the world as seen from the top, with the North Pole at its center, showing Alaska as a natural adjunct of Siberia. Lomonosov suggested that a navigable northeast passage along the Arctic would open all Asia to Russian shipping. Russia, he wrote, was now an empire on three continents, Europe, Asia, and America. Unquote. But expansion to America is going to be tougher than Lomonosov or anyone else imagines. It isn't until 1775 that any real efforts are made, and once again, those efforts come from the private sector. A Russian businessman named Grigory Shelikov sends ships first through the Aleutian Islands and Kuril Islands, and then onto mainland Alaska to found permanent fur outposts. These outposts are sparsely populated, but by 1805, ten years after Shelikov's death, they ultimately extend down the American West Coast as far as San Francisco Bay. These trading posts are organized into the new Russian-American Company, which works a lot like the British and Dutch East and West Indies trade companies. They even employ American and Spanish ship captains to help transport their goods. The Russian-American Company is incredibly profitable, but... It only employs a small number of people. Now think about this. Siberia is an inhospitable wilderness, but you can walk there from Russia and you can make a life there. Alaska, Oregon, and California are an ocean away. Nobody with money in Russia wants to move there. And peasants who might want to move there can't afford the trip. And since the Russians are already exiling criminals to Siberia, there's no need to operate an overseas penal colony like the British did in the early days of Australia. So, while Siberia continues to see a constant stream of settlers, 
the Russian colonies in North America are nothing like their Western European colonial counterparts. Some of these settlements might only have a dozen native Russians living in them, overseeing native laborers and shipping many of their goods via Spanish and American ships. Through the early 1800s, Russian claims to California and Oregon become irrelevant, and the czars begin to worry about the loss of Alaska. Sooner or later, the British Empire, which controls Canada at this time, well, they are liable to make a claim to the land, which would be a humiliating loss. So, in 1867, Russia does the logical thing and sells Alaska to the United States. The cost is 7.2 million U.S. dollars, which is equivalent to over 238 million U.S. dollars in 2022. This works out to just under 37 cents an acre. Even so, the purchase is derided by American newspapers who make fun of Secretary of State William Seward by calling Alaska Seward's folly. After a gold rush, the discovery of huge oil reserves, and the ongoing discovery of mineral deposits, it seems like 37 cents an acre was a pretty good deal. Siberia, in turn, continues to be a good investment for the Russians. In another parallel with American westward expansion, Russia solidifies her eastward expansion with a railroad. The U.S. will complete her 1,911-mile transcontinental railroad in six years, from 1863 to 1869. Russia will take a bit longer, from 1891 to 1904, to complete the 5,772-mile Trans-Siberian Railway. For those of you keeping track at home, that is almost three times as long as the U.S. Transcontinental Railroad. Ultimately, the Trans-Siberian Railway will link the ice-free Pacific port of Vladivostok with European Russia enabling smooth, easy trade across Eurasia and beyond. And, like Alaska, Siberia is also rich in natural resources. It just happens to be a lot bigger and a lot more of those resources. Oil, natural gas, gold, copper, iron, and several rare earth elements are prospected and extracted, a process that continues to this day long after the fur trade has become all but irrelevant, Siberia continues to supply Russia with unimaginable wealth. Eastward migration has also continued. All along, people have been moving east searching for opportunity, and during the 20th century rule of Joseph Stalin, millions of political prisoners were exiled to Siberia. In the U.S., there's a history of westward expansion, and there's an idea, dubious or not, of manifest destiny, the idea that the United States is destined to rule 
North America from sea to shining sea, and this colors the American national character, and it's part of the American identity. But the same can be said for Russia and the conquest of Siberia. Over the course of almost 200 years, the Russians conquered a region larger than the EU and the U.S. combined, built a transcontinental empire, and secured resources that will provide value for centuries into the future. And that's why it's relevant. Are you itching for a good story? Laughter among friends, maybe even a mystery or two? Well, you're in luck. Fire Breathing Kittens is a standalone Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Each episode is a separate three-hour-long story, like a movie for your ears, so you can listen to these adventures in any order you like. So join us on a real play D&D quest as we solve mysteries, attempt comedic banter and enjoy friendship fire breathing kittens podcast fantasy action mystery friendship guess who it's me again dan and i'm here just to tell you about a few things we're doing to expand the channel here at relevant history the first thing that we're doing is a series called dan's war college this is a series of exclusive videos from yours truly detailing various military battles and tactics in history and breaking down how they worked in a little more detail than we do here on the main show. If you're interested in that, it is a Patreon exclusive. The link for the relevant history Patreon is in the description and the monthly fee for the subscription is $5. By the way, with that, you also get access to a private Discord chat room with yours truly. And yes, I take requests for those Patreon videos. Of course, not everybody is able to or wants to contribute financially, and that's just fine. I'm glad you're listening. But if you enjoy the show, why not share it with a friend? Help grow the audience and share something you love with somebody who might enjoy it. Also, it never hurts to leave a review. People are more likely to listen if they see a show with a bunch of reviews, particularly good ones. But eh, if you hated the show, go ahead and leave a review saying that, too. Tell me why you didn't like it. Alternatively, you could just reach out to me on Twitter at Dan Toller Podcast, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, Podcast. You can also reach me at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com if you think that I've made an error in one of the episodes or you just wanted to say hello. Finally, to find... All of my episodes with links to all the various subscription services and podcast feeds as well as my blog, which I have not updated in ages, but eh, you never know. You can find all of that at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>